Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the Why Are We So Obsessed with Justice Thomas edition. This week, we're talking about a bill in Congress to protect same-sex and interracial marriage, why Democrats called for the resignation of Attorney General Dave Yost, where the trial of Larry Householder stands two years after his arrest, and whether another round of redistricting will actually happen. Joining me this week is Jesse Ballmer, our redistricting guru, who is back from a week of sun and beautiful lakes. Yes, I've learned what pure Michigan feels like, and it is lovely, much better than the humidity we have in Columbus today. Yes, I hear Michigan is lovely, except for their football team. Precisely. <laughs> Our first topic is same-sex marriage. So on Tuesday night, the U.S. House passed a bill that says if a state recognizes a marriage as valid, the federal government will too. Basically, it would reverse the Defense of Marriage Act passed in the 90s that defined marriage as between one man and one woman. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned that law as unconstitutional back in 2015, but after the fall of Roe, people in the LGBTQ plus community are worried about that being next. And it's not a baseless fear. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion on Dobbs that he is open to reconsidering the Obergefell decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of concern about what rights or just access to to these various options could be restricted, especially in light of the Dobbs decision on abortion access. And the kind of decision that came from that Dobbs case was all related to privacy rights. And that's the same kind of groundwork that they're using for Obergefell and some of these other cases. And so there's some legitimate concern from individuals in the LGBTQ community about whether their marriages will be safe going forward. And so that's uh, one thing that they're trying to address with this piece of legislation that passed the House and is potentially being taken up in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, so four Ohio Republicans were among the 47 GOP members who voted for it. That includes Mike Carey, Mike Turner, Dave Joyce, and Anthony Gonzalez. Yeah, Anthony Gonzalez has been taking all kinds of interesting votes since he (laughs) has um, decided not to run for re-election. He uh, most notably was uh, the Republican from Ohio who voted to impeach Trump, and that did not go over very well with our former president and faced a challenger almost immediately. Gonzalez later decided not to run for re-election. And so even a vote that came up about, you know, contraception, he was one of the only Ohio Republicans to vote for that. So uh, not surprising that Gonzalez was on that side. I think kind of some similarities between Carrie, Joyce and Turner is they, they represent Ohio cities, which might be more friendly towards LGBTQ issues than some of the other parts of the state, but that's generalizing, I suppose. Yeah. And what happens in that U.S. House is it's going to need 60 senators, so all 50 Democrats and 10 Republicans to end debate and actually bring a vote. That's what the ongoing problem in the U.S. Senate is, is that although you might have enough to pass a bill, you don't actually have enough to end debate. So Ohio's own Republican senator, Rob Portman, said he's going to co-sponsor the bill. So that's one Republican. And then uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have said, so that's two more. But it's not quite clear whether they're going to get to 60. We'll have to kind of wait and see. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting whether Chuck Schumer calls this vote. I think it's probably something the Democrats are encouraging him to do. Uh, not surprising that Rob Portman has signed on to this. He, you know, rather famously in about 2013 said that he supported marriage equality and same-sex marriages, largely influenced by his son coming out as gay to him and his wife, who both said, you know, we love our son. We want him to have the same opportunities that other people do to get married and have loving relationships. So that was kind of out of the norm for the Republican Party at the time, has in the years since become a more normal position for Republicans to take. But it was it was a step for him at the time. Yeah. I mean, we forget that was that was before Obergefell. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it's been almost 10 years, which I mean, I keep I keep thinking like 1990 was only 10 years ago. But no. So our second topic is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. Democrats called on him to resign this week over the comments he made about the 10-year-old girl who traveled to Indiana for an abortion after being raped. Ohio Democratic Party Chair Liz Walters said that his first move was to go on national television and question whether she was real and basically spread misinformation. And then he continued to question the story through state and national media. Now, Yost's office called this, quote, a Hail Mary pass from a party that must be clearly concerned about the quality of its own candidate. He is not resigning. Yeah, correct. I think Dave Yost really stepped in it on these comments that he made about how there was no scintilla of evidence and so forth. And then, you know, shortly after there was a, a person who was charged, this Gerson Fuentes, um, and recently indicted with two counts of rape. So we'll see how that court case comes out. It's probably a situation where a prosecutor would have wanted to wait and see what was happening with a criminal case. There are 88 different counties across Ohio. And so it was hard to say definitively at the point when he was making those comments that there was going to be no criminal charges coming from this. That being said, it was a very popular talking point at the time among Republicans to be questioning this Indianapolis Star story, which didn't have a lot of details at the time. It was basically the Indiana doctor talking about this case involving a 10-year-old who came to Indiana to have an abortion because um, she was past the point, this kind of six weeks after fetal cardiac activity is detected to have an abortion in Ohio. Yeah, I just I, the timing of it, it looks like he went on Fox News while Gerson Fuentes, that's the man who's been arrested and accused of this crime, was in custody because I think police arrested him the day before he was arraigned. So it's just it's it was really bad timing for Dave Yost. So our third topic is former House Speaker Larry Householder. And two years ago this week, FBI agents showed up at his farm in Perry County and arrested him. He was charged on federal racketeering and bribery charges, along with a couple of other men. And basically, the idea was that he accepted, or this is what the FBI says, that he accepted millions of dollars in bribes from First Energy in exchange for passing favorable legislation. It's a basic, like, pay-to-play scam. And... It's been two years. He is tentatively set to go on trial in January. Two of his co-conspirators have already pleaded guilty. One died by suicide. And then the other, former Ohio Republican Party Chair Matt Borges, has also pleaded not guilty and will potentially go in January as well. Yeah, that's the expectation. These cases are being tried together. And so it seems like it's been so long and yet this just happened yesterday, it feels like. Um, we were in the <laughs> middle of the pandemic and a lot of the shutdown restrictions. I remember getting this press release from the Department of Justice saying that, you know, we have this massive case involving, you know, $60 million in a bribery case. And I like 
was just racking my brain for what this could be connected to. And then we started hearing the names that were connected to this and it immediately became evident that it was related to House Bill 6, which was this bill that would kind of bail out uh, two nuclear plants in northern Ohio owned by First Energy Solutions at the time. The company is now called Energy Harbor. And the allegations are that um, First Energy, through a variety of dark money groups, provided this money in exchange for this piece of legislation. They helped to get Larry Householder into the speaker chair, pass this legislation, and then defend that legislation against a referendum effort to block it. And if you'll recall, this referendum effort was just nasty, dirty, oh, this horrible. Was the Chinese are taking over your energy ads. Correct. And even just like hiring other signature collection firms out from underneath the people who were trying to challenge this law. There were actual like physical altercations between these people. It was just, it was a mess. And so I think at the time, everyone suspected this was kind of shady, but no one really thought it was potentially criminal until these uh, federal charges came out. So as you said, Larry Householder has pleaded not guilty. Matt Borges has pleaded not guilty and they'll they'll have their time in court if that's what they so choose. And I suspect we'll learn a lot from this trial and I'm, I'm looking forward to knowing those details. Yeah, because there were lawmakers who wore wires. There were political operatives who like worked with the FBI. There's like so many recorded phone calls and details that like, I will just say like, I am, I don't know, the curiosity in me is like, I need to know what is on those tapes. But... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, correct. There's there's a lot that we know. There's First Energy, the company that was involved, has entered into a deferred prosecution oh, agreement, right. essentially yeah. saying, yes, we did um, try to bribe these two politicians, one being Larry Householder. The other one is not specifically named, but I think you can piece together that it was the former PUCO uh, chairman, Sam Randazzo. Sam Randazzo has not been charged as well. So but his home was raided. His home was raided um, by the FBI. And so while you have these individuals who have been charged, you have this company that has admitted to some wrongdoing. There's still a number of people involved in this case that have never been charged with any crime that I think we suspect. You look at the First Energy executives who lost their jobs, most notably the CEO Chuck Jones, who um, in federal court proceedings related to these lawsuits, uh, the company is saying like these are the people who directed the bribes um, but have not been charged federally with any sort of criminal charge and again say they did not wrong. So there's a lot of kind of characters in this whole saga and it will be interesting how it plays out. I think the federal government moves much slower (laughs) than um, maybe like you might be used to in state criminal cases. And so a lot of it's just waiting to see what comes out. Yeah. And it's a complex case. Like there are millions of pages of documents. Like I do not envy the people who end up on this jury because they will be spending weeks hearing very like technically complex testimony about like bank records and court and like documents. And that's the thing that people don't realize if you watch like Law and Order and stuff like trials sometimes are really boring and not sexy. And I think it's also going to be an interesting case study really nationally because the the allegation is kind of the dark money was used as bribe money. And yeah. there hasn't been a lot of regulation of these 501c4s and these dark money groups. And what are they allowed to do? What they're not allowed to do? At what point does this become political activity versus just like educating the public about a topic and just the amount of money that can flow through these organizations without any disclosure whatsoever is, is kind of 
of mind boggling. And as you can tell, Jesse is our House Bill 6 dark money expert. And speaking of another topic on which Jesse has extensive expertise, our final topic is redistricting. So the Ohio Supreme Court rejected another congressional map for the 15 folks we sent to the U.S. House in D.C. that will not impact the November 2022 election. That map's already set and done. But what they did say is, hey, for 2024, we would like you to go back and draw a new set. The Ohio legislature has 30 days. If they don't do it, the redistricting commission then has 30 days, but sounds like neither of them are going to do it, right? Yeah, we'll see what happens. But if, you know, past behavior is predictive of future um, actions, I think <laughs> it's unlikely. I've asked the leaders um, or spokespeople for the leaders in both the Senate and the House whether they're planning to come back and take a crack at these congressional, this congressional map in the next 30 days. They they had no intention of returning this early from, from their break. So I would be surprised if they come back, but you never know what could happen. And these are maps for 2024. And you might be a little confused as to why we're using unconstitutional maps in November. (laughs) Well, number one, we've already used them to select the primary contenders in May because these were the maps that we used at that time because, you know, they were the maps we had. Things are considered constitutional until proven otherwise, which is what happened this week. So they're the maps that we have. And also the process for redrawing these maps, like you just laid out those 60 days, is going to put us way too close to the November election to, to get another map in. And that's something that the people suing over these maps were kind of cognizant of. So, but that does mean that in August for the state house races and in November for the state house and congressional races, we're using maps that the Ohio Supreme Court's majority has said favor Republicans in a way that the voters who approve these anti-gerrymandering language did not intend and did not want. And so it's it's a weird place to be <laughs> in. Um, also, I don't think anyone drafting these constitutional amendments intended for us to redraw maps every two years, which is the place that we're potentially in going into the 2024 cycle. It is the song that never ends here at the State House. And one more thing before you go. A Dayton pastor who hoped to be on the ballot for governor this fall didn't collect enough signatures. Neil Peterson um, said that he will challenge the invalidated signatures that put him under the limit, saying he will not let your voice be silenced, but we'll have to wait and see if he makes the ballot. I'm sure Democratic candidate Nan Whaley and her campaign are kind of hoping that he does. Uh, You know, Democrats have been sort of open that they hoped Peterson would pull votes from sitting Governor Mike Yeah, it was interesting just talking to Democrats about this race. I think they're eager for a third party candidate, especially one that's uh, running from the right of Mike DeWine. So without Peterson on the ballot or, you know, anyone else other than the two candidates, that doesn't help them out so much. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like IndieOnline.com. That's I-N-D-E online.com.